0: So, good evening everyone. Uh, I'm pleased again to be with everyone. I'm getting a sense of the uh, the heat of Tucson and the, the wonderful rain today. Uh, so, very good to be with you. And tonight uh, I'm giving the third of three talks on Buddhist practice and the transformation of racism. And Tonight I want to talk uh, uh, a little bit less than I have in the past. I'm gonna intend to talk about 35 minutes or so, and then have some time for us to talk in small groups, uh, particularly just about what is alive, what's moving in our own thinking, our own exploration of the whole area. So we'll go into small groups And then we'll come back and have a discussion. I'm gonna leave enough time to have a a good chunk of time for talking together. And I was reflecting on two things that I wanted to communicate before beginning. One is I wanted to uh, appreciate in terms of this series of talks, uh, my mother, uh, Bernice, who really, uh, had as one of her passions, uh, working to help to transform racism, and she was active on those issues growing up in New York, uh, from the time she was a teenager, uh, which was in the uh, like late 1930s, early 40s, working and working in Harlem when she was quite young, and later. Uh, moving down to Washington, D.C., being part later of the uh, initial Head Start program, working on issues of poverty and race in, in rural Maryland, and uh, then moving to Richmond, Virginia, where for 10 years she was working on issues of race in the uh, desegregation of the schools and doing what much of what we would now call diversity work. Diversity training. So I, um, I've learned a lot from her, and just a lot's been passed on. And she was also able, uh, when they were in Washington, to uh, partly because of their activities with uh, a religious group, were able to uh, actually be at the front of the 1963 march and sit like 10 or 15 feet away from Dr. King as he gave his "I Have a Dream" speech. So want to appreciate my mom in in that way and really uh, sort of got me going with interest in this at a pretty young age. Uh, And I also wanted to appreciate that the uh, exploration of these issues of race and racism are expanding. The discussions are expanding today. Uh, in the newspaper, there was a discussion how the Sierra Club was looking into its relationship to its founder, John Muir, who seemingly had uh, a number of rather racist ideas. Uh, another, I got an email from Oxfam, uh, the you know, the group that uh, really helps with issues of poverty and so forth around the world. And they have a seminar on looking into their own, Tendencies to be colonizing, and then lastly, just in terms of the widespread interest, I don't know if do, do you get uh, the the column called Miss Manners in Tucson? Because because I was I found I sometimes read it in the San Francisco Chronicle. Miss Manners is sort of like Ann Landers, you know, it's a advice column, and the advice column for three days ago was about how to deal with discussions of racism, believe it or not. And Miss Manners gave this kind of very direct guidance to uh, a man who wrote in, and the title of the article for the Miss Manners is, White Male Destined to Lose Racism Argument with Friends. Anyway, so it's very widespread. So what I've been doing these three weeks in my own mind is giving a kind of overall framework grounded in Buddhist practice for us to approach the whole area of race and racism. And I've been using uh, as the core framework a very traditional model that of the three areas of training, the three foundational areas of training Those three being training and wisdom, how to understand our experience, understand the world we might say, which was my uh, initial talk two weeks ago. And then a second area is uh, meditation, more the inner inquiry. And last time I used that framework to look into how we can work meditatively in an inner way with issues of race and racism. And today, I'll look at the third area, which is the area of, of ethics. It's usually translated as the way that we really uh, bring, especially our, um, our wisdom and compassion into our everyday lives and into the world. And many of you know that these three areas of training also, in a way, map out the uh, Noble Eightfold Path. So it really gets at the fundamental way that training occurs, that uh, the training in wisdom relates to what is usually translated as right understanding and right intention. The training in meditation corresponds to right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And the training in ethics corresponds to right livelihood, right speech and right action, which is really a way of talking about the ethical, the ethical precepts. So today I wanna to continue and look at ethics and I wanna continue also with the approach to Buddhist practice in general, which you can see from the first two talks, really is developing what we might call a broadened understanding of practice. In other words, when I looked at wisdom, I didn't just look at the understanding of the individual mind, body and heart. But I also invited us to use wisdom to understand Uh, particularly greed, hatred, and delusion as we see it in the world. So wisdom becomes a way of understanding uh, society, understanding social conditions as well. So it's a broader sense of practice. In a similar way, we can look meditatively at how we internalize uh, social conditioning, whether it's race or gender. And that's, again broadening the sense of practice in many ways. That's really the perspective I'm offering is that of a broadened sense of practice, but clearly very much grounded in a traditional sense of the, the areas of practice. So I have, uh, there's a, I wanted to give a, a short reading from uh, the poet, the Buddhist poet uh, Gary Snyder, who said this in 1961 also pointing to a broadened sense of practice. He said this, historically, Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the degree to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors, considering fear and desire to be given facts of the human condition. Although Mahayana Buddhism has a grand vision of universal salvation, the actual achievement of Buddhism has been the development of practical systems of meditation towards the end of liberating a few dedicated individuals from psychological hang-ups and cultural conditionings. Institutional Buddhism has been conspicuously ready to accept or ignore the inequalities and tyrannies of whatever political system it found itself under. This can be death to Buddhism because it is death to any meaningful function of compassion. Wisdom without compassion feels no pain The mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self-void. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dhammapath. That's what I've been referring to. Wisdom or Prajna, meditation, dhyana, and morality, sila. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into the mind to see this for yourself over and over again, until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the true community or sangha of all beings. That's from 1961. And it points to that broadened sense of practice. And I should say that uh, as Buddhism has been developed in the Western communities where people have been taking on Buddhist practice, not the ethnically Buddhist communities, the focus has clearly been meditation and we've often uh, neglected ethics. We focus a lot on meditation, even to the point where often we may have conversations and ask each other, how is your practice going? And the answer might be, really good, I'm doing half an hour a day. And that might point to one sitting meditation. Certainly important, but can you hear even in that very common kind of discussion, how there might be a leaving out of the practice of ethics or the practice of uh, bringing our insights, our wisdom, our compassion into our relationships, how we live moment to moment and our being in the larger world. Actually, last time I was in Tucson, I actually gave a talk on ethics. And I probably, I think I made some of these points, may have even read the same quotation by Gary Snyder, which is one of my favorites. Uh, But it's a really crucial point that I think part of what Uh, looking into race and racism does, is it lets us see that we need in many ways, or that it's important to broaden our sense of practice. So actually, that includes all three of these dimensions. So tonight, the focus I want to give is to uh, uh, speak about ethics. And one other point in the uh, Noble Eightfold Path, one of the distinguishing factors of the eight factors of the path, one of the distinguishing qualities is that all of the factors are interrelated. That we don't really do mindfulness without connecting it in some way with ethics. And there's actually an understanding in the, uh, in the text, in the tradition, that there can be wrong mindfulness. For example, I can be a burglar and be very mindful as I burgle, if that's a word. I think it is. You know that as I'm in the process of uh, being a burglar, I can be very mindful. The Buddha would have called that wrong mindfulness. There's a word for it in Pali. micchasati It would be it would be uh, being mindful but not connecting it to ethics, not making the connections between all the factors. So I want to work, uh, really uh, focus on two really, two basic principles that guide our approach to ethics in relation to transforming race and racism. The first is that we, develop as it were an ethical commitment not to harm, not to harm others, but also we broaden that sense of ethical commitment to include not letting harm be done. And the second way that that the ethical commitment really plays out in terms of transforming race and racism is that in our transformation of racism, the actions to, as it were, transform transform harm themselves need to be actions that don't cause further harm. In other words, the means and the ends have to be unified. So I'm going to talk in some depth. Those are the two main points I'm going to make and I'll uh, and I'll also in the process talk about the different forms of potential action. And that'll that'll lead us into our, our small groups. Actually in the tradition, in the teachings of the Buddha and in teachings of many other Buddhist teachers, we have a sense that ethics is not simply about our personal face-to-face interactions, but that it can also be applied to our living in the larger world, in the larger society. The ethical guidelines in general are expressed more negatively in terms of not harming, especially. You know so we know the we know the five lay precepts which are to not to uh, not to harm, particularly not to kill, not to take that which is not given, and then to express care and not do harm in relationship to sexuality, in relation to speech, and in relationship to substances which shift consciousness, usually translated as intoxicants. And so uh, those are expressed negatively. They're also related to positive qualities like care, respect, generosity, uh, and uh, compassion, I think, compassion and empathy. Interestingly, in the teachings of the Buddha himself, I I would say there is a wider conception of what ethics is other than simply guiding our face-to-face behavior. We can see the Buddha talking at times Uh, with a wider sense. This is from the uh, collection of discourses called the Sutta Napata, which is one of the oldest of the collections. The Buddha, summarizing the first precept about non-harming says, let one not destroy life, nor cause others to destroy life, nor approve of others' killing. So there are ways that it goes beyond one simple actions. When we follow this precept, the Buddha says, we abandon the onslaught on, on breathing beings without stick or swords, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. There's an expansive quality to that. In fact, the Buddha said, that not harming is the most fundamental of the five precepts. He, the Buddha also once said that not harming and not letting harm be done is the distinguishing mark of the Dhamma, of the whole teachings. He said that once. And he himself at times tried to prevent conflicts. At one time he intervened to try to stop a war so again, there's there's a wider sense of what uh, of what the precepts mean, about, about what ethics mean, and later Buddhists have often also given wider understandings. Uh, the great king Ashoka, who was a Buddhist king, wonderful story of his life from the uh, third century of the common era, he enacted regulations to prohibit capital punishment. Can you believe that? Almost 2000 years ago, that part of India outlawed capital punishment. And they also prohibited the killing of animals. So something really, someone really to learn from. In other contexts, in Burma, for example, there were there was a long tradition of Burmese uh, monks coming up to places where prisoners were about to be executed for something and snatching them away, of not letting them be killed. In the in the contemporary area, in the contemporary time, I should say, we have uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the great beloved Vietnamese teacher who's been very articulate about this sense of ethics being broader. Some of you may know his expressions of uh, the first precept about not harming. This is from his book, For a Future to be Possible. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I vow to cultivate compassion and learn ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined not to kill not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking and in my way of life. Can you hear that expanded sense beyond what our usual sense is? It's a lot, right? That's a big commitment. We take an ethical, we make an ethical commitment, we make a commitment uh, not just not to kill, but not to let others kill, according to Thich Nhat Hanh. He goes on to say, We cannot support any act of killing. No killing can be justified. But not to kill is not enough. We must also learn ways to prevent others from killing. We cannot say, I am not responsible. They did it. My hands are clean. If you were in Germany during the time of the Nazis, you could not say, they did it. I did not. So that's radical, isn't it? How do we live with that? You know, it's really cutting through a certain kind of individualism. And one of the ways that I like to contemplate that kind of ethical commitment is to ask the question, what would I have done in a past period? And there are a lot of past periods where we now think that uh, ethical integrity would have commanded us to act. We can think of what would I have done if I was a German non-Jew during the Nazi time, or if I was a white Southerner in 1950 or 1850, what would I have done? Would I have just gone along with things, or would have I, would I have been uh, resisting? And in that regard, I think it's actually helpful to contemplate those who historically have resisted social systems of harm. You know, to look at uh, people. I know Anna went to Spring, Spring, many of you, I think, too, went to Spring Washam's uh, talks on Harriet Tubman. It's valuable to study the lives of people who resisted systems of harming and took it as their ethical, spiritual commitment. I was listening about two days ago on our local radio to a program about the resistance to the internment of the Japanese. And there was a man who lived in California who was a lawyer named Wayne Collins who brought the United States government to suit, saying that the uh, internment of the Japanese in 1941 and on was um, unconstitutional. He brought a case to court. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court in 1944 said it was constitutional. Interestingly, about 40 years later, the US courts declared that indeed it was unconstitutional, that it shouldn't have been permitted by the government or by the Supreme Court. So he can look at the life of this man named Wayne Collins. You can look up his life and there are many people like that. It was very interesting. And I just want to say that uh, when we contemplate our ethical commitment uh, to prevent harm, to address the harm that's there, in, in the case we're looking in the harm of racism It's a lot, right? If you take... But what I'm saying is that as a Buddhist practitioner who takes ethics seriously, that's our commitment. It's a tall order, right? It's a lot, right? And, you know, it's not, of course, not just racism, but there are many other forms of harm being done in relation to gender, sexual orientation, age, not to mention the normal functioning of the economic system in the US and then internationally, you know, or the fact that most of us, when we simply drive a car, we're doing harm to the world, right? That's a lot to take in, isn't it? And yet that our commitment is to inquire and to to work with that. I should say that our intention to awaken is not a small thing either. It's a kind of a, a journey that, keep, that keeps us going. but And so there's something very deep that can be a North Star that's both powerful and quite challenging. Yeah. So what are the ways that we might act? I'll just mention a few. What are the ways we might act to help transform racism? How might we end the harm related to racism? First of all, we might transform racism in our own minds, however that appears, whether we have internalized racism as a a person of color or whether we have racism there in other ways as a white person, we can work meditatively, we can work in other ways, that's clearly a significant form of action, we can transform our own mind, body and hearts. We can work meditatively, we can work to understand, we can read more. We can read the history, we can come to know more. Very important. Education, very, very crucial for ourselves, for our children, for our, our communities. Um, changing the uh, educational system can be a form of action. So I'm, I'm going to name a few and see what you know. See if any of these call for, call you call uh, for you to to follow. Um, you know, there could be uh, intervening in our families or our communities if we notice something that's racist. And again, I'll speak more about that in a moment. I think we have to do so at times with with empathy, particularly in our extended families. But we might choose to act at the level of the family, the level of the community, our workplace, our spiritual community, as we're, as we're doing here in certain ways. Um, uh, Tucson, or where we live. And this could take many, many forms. Again, it can take the form of parenting, of speaking up when one hears racial comments, of maybe helping where there's need for tutoring for all sorts of things. We may also wish to help organizations that uh, are dedicated to transforming racism. Help them financially, help them as volunteers, and so forth. We may want to contribute to developing uh, alternative ways that our main institutions may work. Maybe ways that the uh, different ways that the police might work, or ways of addressing poverty, or the economic system, or crime. You know? And uh, you know, a big one could be to look into shifting in some ways uh, some of the ways we do economics, because I pointed in the first talk to the way that I was generally interpreting racism as a divide-and-conquer strategy. This is what it was from the beginning, Uh, developed by the wealthy elites, again, to divide and conquer. And we can see that very, very clearly now with the current president, you know, in what's called generally uh, dog whistling, you know, that people know, but it's not overtly racist. We can join movements, be part of demonstrations. We can join groups, uh, join Brian's group or uh, very possibly we'll have a group in the fall with IMT. Being part of a group, very helpful. There's one at Spirit Rock that's, I think, starting, anyone can join starting, I think, early August. The organ- some of the organizations on my resource list, like Wide Awake, uh, have programs beginning uh, in August. One can join. Uh, an old friend of mine, I think I put him on the resource list named Victor Lee Lewis has a group starting in September, so he can do that. So see where you're drawn, you know, see what calls you. You know, and we'll have a chance to uh, look into that also in the small groups. And then the second large point, the first large point was that we can broaden our sense of ethics so that ethics involves contributing to transforming harm that is expressed in this case through race racism. The second larger point was that in the process of acting, we want to not do further harm. So there's something very crucial here, that we commit to non-harming in the process of transforming systems of harm. Very, very crucial point that uh, Another way of saying this is that we're really connecting our inner practice with our outer practice. The center of our inner practice, we looked at this in the first talk, is developing non-reactivity. Some of you know the teaching of the two arrows, not shooting the second arrow. When there's something difficult, painful, unpleasant, not reacting in a way which, as it were, passes on the pain but rather in our actions, we commit to doing so in a way which doesn't cause further harm as much as possible, knowing that that's hard and we're gonna cause some harm. In many ways, this links up very directly with the traditions of nonviolence from Gandhi, King, Dorothy Day and others. There the understanding is we have received pain, we have received oppression we will meet the pain, the harm, the oppression without causing further pain, harm, and oppression. In other words, the means will be as pure as the end, to use uh, Dr. King's language. And partly this means working through reactivity. Dr. King once said, uh, this is a quote, the supreme task is to organize and unite people so that their anger becomes a transforming force. So it's actually to transform anger, to transform reactivity, that's very naturally occurs when we are oppressed, notice oppression, see harm being done by a system. And that's of course where Buddhist practice comes in because we have ways of transforming anger, fear, despair, grief, and so forth. We have ways of working with that. Gandhi said something very similar. With inner work, anger can be transformed into a power which can move the world. So that's again coming under this sense of shifting the usual way that so many social change movements are reactive. And we have a whole history of at times social change movements leading to further problems. You know, we can see that in the history of revolutions, French Revolution, Soviet Revolution, other social change. So this is a very crucial point. you know. And for me, it's been something very interesting. I've taught a number of short retreats on the connection between Buddhist inner practice, more inner practice, and nonviolence. I've done that with my colleague Kazu Haga, who has a very wonderful book called Healing Resistance. So I could say a lot more there, uh, maybe just say one one more thing. One of the approaches, which I think is very important, which also is an illustration of the way that uh, that we don't cause further harming in addressing racism, I learned from a man named David Kempt, who's an African American who's a trainer, and his emphasis is particularly. You might look him up on website. His emphasis is particularly to have white people who are committed to ending racism talk with their extended families using empathy, not trying to convert them in terms of their political views, but saying that a conservative person can also be committed to end racism. And so very, very interesting. He says the center of it is being empathic towards the person who may have a different political view, but thinking that one can come together. And this is also the, I think, so central for Dr. King. You read his work and he was tremendously empathic towards uh, white people, particularly towards white poor people. He could see how they were being manipulated. He could see how they were actually uh, in a sense, losing aspects of their own soul and being manipulated and also uh, not really realizing who their true oppressors were. And so King in the later part of his life connected racial justice and economic justice. I believe that that is the strategy which is so crucial to transforming racism because it gets at the divide and conquer strategy, but it also makes it, such that for white people, it's in their interest, except if you're a member of the elite, uh, you know, maybe the top one, 2%, it makes it in the interest of white people to transform racism. It's not doing it for others only. It's doing it for oneself. So let me finish by two comments. We want to recognize that we're in this for the long haul. I think of uh, Dr. Ari Ratney from Sri Lanka, who uh, has said in relation to the civil war in Sri Lanka, the problems took 500 years to form. We need a 500 year plan. How long has racism been formed? Well, maybe 400 years, maybe longer. We need a 400 year plan or we need to have a sense of being there for the long haul. This isn't just, uh, you know, uh, something we do just for the fall. So we want people who are committed for the long haul and who have these qualities we develop in our practice, particularly equanimity and balance. And so in that regard, let me finish with a quotation from uh, the Indian writer and activist uh, Vandana Shiva. This is what she says. I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. This is about being there for the long haul. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that, just that itself creates new potential. And I've learned from the Bhagavad Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do because these are not in my hands. The context is not in your control, but your commitment is yours to make, and you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. You want it to lead to a better world and you shape your actions and take full responsibility for them, but then you have some detachment. And that combination of deep passion and deep detachment allows me to take on the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think getting that freedom is a social duty because I think we owe it to each other not to burden each other with prescription and demands. I think what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. Whoa. Yay, Vandana Shiva. (laughs) So I want to finish there. With that, really that invitation to developing the perspective for the long haul and invite us to go back just for a moment now to remember what you may have reflected on at the end of the meditation. What has life for you in this whole inquiry? Maybe related to what I said, but maybe something that came up in the last two times. What has life for you? And do you have a sense of what your next steps are? And what I want to invite is us now to go into groups. It looks like we have, uh, let's see. Wow, I was going to have groups of three. We have myself plus 27 people. So we'll have nine groups of three. It'll be um, done arbitrarily. And here's the invitation in the groups. And I'll I'll work with timing, but if you have a, a cell phone nearby, that's also helpful to time. I'm gonna invite people to, in each group of three, we'll do one person, we'll just talk about what's alive for me and what my sense is of next steps. It's those two things. What's alive for me in this inquiry and what are my next steps? Each person will talk about that for three minutes. We'll rotate, I'll use the, the uh, breakout groups and give you a command we will be at the top of the box when when you change, but if you can time yourself, that's better. And then each one will have three minutes and then we'll have about four minutes just to talk informally wherever you wanna go with it. And then we'll come back and talk together. Okay, so let me... Uh, do the breakout groups. So pretty soon you'll be in a breakout group. Please please join everyone or, your, or the math will get messed up. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.